So this morning we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, the second chapter in this book. Now when Matthew wrote his gospel, the gospel of Luke had already been circulating for some time. So Matthew only gave a, a few additional details about Jesus' birth. And we looked at those back in December at the end of chapter 2, the second half, I'm sorry, of chapter 1. But then Matthew also added the story that was really important for his primary objective. You see, when Matthew wrote his gospel, he wanted to present and to prove Jesus as the Christ through the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies because his primary target audience was the Jewish population of Israel, especially, if you will, the, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scholars, the scribes, the people who had all the answers, but they were all the wrong answers. And the events of chapter 2 serve to, to meet his purpose. Now, even though, even though these events, and this is the coming of the Magi and events that followed that, even though they're commonly included as a part of the, what we call the Christmas story, there are strong reasons to believe that these events occurred quite a while after Jesus' birth, anywhere from a few months to more likely a couple of years after Jesus was born. Some things that we look at to come to this conclusion is we see that Joseph and Mary and Jesus were living in a house in Bethlehem. We'll see that in verse 11. They weren't living in a stable or a cave. And uh, very probably Jesus was not sleeping in a feeding trough for animals. Another thing that tells us that these events happened quite a while later was that these, these wise men that we'll read about in a moment, they had traveled a great distance after first seeing the star that indicated Jesus' birth, the birth of the king of the Jews. They traveled that great distance, and that was after they... It takes time to assemble a large caravan, and it had to have been a large caravan that they came with. This wasn't three men on camels coming across the wilderness by themselves carrying gold and frankincense and myrrh. In those days, the wilderness was full of robbers and thieves and murderers. It had to have been a large caravan. And it takes time to put those together. They had to acquire the provisions 
necessary food and water, the necessities for this large caravan to travel for months. And by the way, that must have also included a number of soldiers to help to protect these people as they traveled. Another reason we know this happened quite a while after Jesus was born. You'll recall, and we'll get to it again in verse 7, Herod asked the wise men when the star had first appeared. And then he used that information to determine the age of the children that he was going to slaughter. And that period of time was two years. Another thing we need to look at is that even though tradition and some songs and Hallmark, the greeting card company, they, they all refer to three wise men. But scripture does not give us the number. It's not given in the text. God doesn't tell us. And there were certainly not just three, but more likely a great company of these wise men and their assistants and their servants and so forth. There was a lot of people, again, because nobody traveled in small groups in those days. Large caravans for defensive purposes alone that's why I mentioned the soldiers. Now, the traditional notion that there were just three, it just comes from the fact that there were three kinds of gifts that were given. That doesn't mean there were three people. There could have been 10 people bringing gold. Could have been eight people bringing frankincense. Could have been more bringing myrrh. But there were three gifts, so the tradition has these three wise men. And oh, by the way, these were not kings. I know we like to sing a king, you know, sing a song rather, you know, we three kings of Orient are. Well, they weren't kings. They were magi. That's the name that was given by the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians to this, this priestly caste, the intellectual elite of their societies. And in those days, they hadn't separated out uh, by, by various categories and disciplines as we have today, because these men included teachers, they included priests, physicians, experts in astronomy and astrology. Uh, they included prophets, interpreters of dreams, soothsayers, sorcerers, and again, this special cast of wise men from those lands were also well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures, tracing back to the time of Daniel. You see, if we remember our Old Testament, these men came from the land of the Babylonian captivity, which occurred 
approximately 600 years earlier. When King Nebuchadnezzar conquered the Jewish nation, he destroyed Jerusalem and Solomon's temple. And you'll remember in three different periods, he took captive most of the people, took them into slavery from Judea and Jerusalem, took them into slavery into Babylon. And then later, after Babylon was conquered by the Medes and the Persians, he took them further into Persia. And these people included men like Ezekiel and Daniel. Ezekiel was taken in the first group, and Daniel was taken in the second. And yet, when the Jews were allowed to return, 70 years later, you remember a while back when we studied the book of Zechariah, they were allowed to return. They could all come back, but less than 100,000 did so out of what was probably more than a million Jews that had been taken captive. Most of the people chose to stay in those foreign lands. And those lands include what we call Iraq and Iran today. Iraq being the land of Babylon and Iran being the land of Persia. But let's rewind again back to the time of the captivity. You'll recall that Daniel Daniel rose to the highest levels of leadership in that land, even as a slave. He rose to high leadership, and even after Babylon was campered, uh, conquered by the Medo-Persians, his leadership continued. He was recognized by the new leaders, by Darius and Cyrus, the, the, the kings of the Medes and the Persians. And we know that Nebuchadnezzar himself had appointed Daniel because of his great wisdom that he had shown. He appointed him the chief of the Magi, the chief of this special caste of men. We read about that, by the way, if you want to look at your cross-reference sheets, Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, 5, verse 11, and chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, giving clear indication that Daniel had become a leader of that group of men. Now, doubtlessly, as a chief of the Magi, we also know, remember, Daniel was a faithful Jew. He was faithful. He opened his windows facing Jerusalem three times a day, got on his knees, bowed down with his head to the ground, and worshipped Yahweh, the God of the Jews. So there's no doubt that as the leader of the Magi, Daniel had clearly introduced those scholars to what is the greatest and what was the greatest source of wisdom and truth that existed, the Hebrew scriptures. 
the Bible of that time. And we know that those scriptures contain as many prophecies of the Messiah. So putting this all together, this visit of the Magi coming to Jerusalem from the east is easy to understand. These men had studied. They, they had a better understanding of the coming of the Messiah than the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' time. Okay, with that background, let's get into our text. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They had understood that from their studies. They said, For we have seen his star in the east, and have come to worship him. I want to look at a couple of things quickly here. It says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king. This refers to Herod the Great, the founder of the dynasty of the Herods. And he ruled... He had been placed there by Rome, and he ruled there under Rome from 37 B.C. until he died in 4 B.C. And that tells us that Jesus was born somewhere around 6 or 5 B.C. before Herod died. So this gives us a better picture of how old Jesus was when he was crucified. He was crucified around the year A.D. 30. So he was probably about 35 years old at that time. Then we also see that in verse 2 that these magi, these wise men, they said, we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. There have been many speculations over the centuries about this star. The one that the Magi call his star, the star of the king of the Jews. Some have said that it was a conjunction of several planets at that particular time. Others, like Henry Morris, has said that it, it must have been a supernova, uh, an explosion of a star that would have shone for a year and a half or so. These people are trying to explain by natural means what this star was. But both of those explanations are very unlikely. Because, as we'll see in the next few verses, this star moved in a very unnatural way, quite unlike either of those speculations. It actually moved, 
paused, moved again, and then settled over the house where Jesus, Joseph, and Mary lived. It moved as to specifically lead or guide the Magi. Think about it. That's very similar to the way that the pillar of cloud and fire moved in the days of Moses to guide the Israelites in the wilderness. And, you know, since God has chosen not to give us any more information, I personally think it best to take this as another of the Lord's supernatural acts, miracles, and not try to explain it away for the benefit of the modern mind that disbelieves in God's miracles. I believe that that star was put there by God to guide the Magi, just like, just like he, he had that pillar of fire and cloud and smoke to guide the Israelites. Okay, let's move on. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. You need to remember that Herod saw himself as the king of the Jews. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, when he gathered them together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He was quoting the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. So by checking with his priests and scribes, Herod finds out where this child is to be born. And he's about to also find out when, which, as we know, is going to lead to great tragedy. Verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, Bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Of course, we know that worship was farthest from his mind, though that is specifically why the wise men had come, following the star, searching for the newborn Messiah. When they heard the king, verse 9, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the child was. 
So again, this star it paused, then moved to Bethlehem, and then it stood still again. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, not a stable, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, I want you to picture this scene in your mind, very unlike the, uh, the nativity scenes we, we put out at Christmas time. Remember, we're not just looking at three men, but at quite a number of men and their servants. And they're very excited, very excited. They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, we're told. They were excited to finally arrive at, at, at this climax of months probably years of study, of observation, of preparation, and then of travel. And then we see that they had brought these precious gifts. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And I want you to note Somehow, these men had no doubt that the young child, Jesus, was the Messiah, the King of the Jews. They followed the star. They saw Jesus, the young child, with Mary, his mother. And they fell down on their faces and worshipped him. Incredible. Incredible. And then they were divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod. They departed for their own country another way. You notice that God was communicating warnings rather heavily with dreams and angels, including one for Jesus' stepfather, Joseph. We see this in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of Yahweh appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod. So they were in Egypt until 4 BC when Herod the Great died. They stayed there that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Yahweh through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt... I called my son. That's an interesting quote. Out of Egypt, I called my son. 
It comes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And at that time, when Hosea was writing, it referred specifically to the Lord's leading Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. But here, Matthew uses that as something called a visual prophecy rather than a verbal one. Visual prophecies, you've heard them called types. And they're always fulfilled in Christ and they're always identified clearly in the New Testament text as what they are. In fact, Jesus himself used a visual prophecy in this way when he was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In verse 14, he told Nicodemus, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You'll remember that serpent that God told Moses to make, that, that serpent of brass, because the serpents were going around the whole, the whole tribe of Israel killing people because of their disobedience. And Moses prayed for the people and God said, make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and hold it up. And if anyone who is stricken looks at that serpent, in other words, if they, by an act of faith, they looked at that bronze serpent on a pole, they'd be healed. And Jesus used that example, that type, that visual prophecy to refer to himself being lifted up, not on a bronze pole, but on the cross, so that all who would look to him in faith, and that includes you and me, would be saved. And Jesus used that as an example when he was speaking with Nicodemus. Back to our text, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under here, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. See, they had told him that they first saw that star two years earlier. This is one of the indicators that these events took place quite a while after Jesus was born. If it had been just a few days or a week, Herod wouldn't have slaughtered everybody up to two years old. He would have just had the newborns killed, but he didn't. Verse 17, then was fulfilled 
what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. This is Jeremiah 31:15, where he said, A voice was heard in Ramah, or Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now, Jeremiah had written those words about 600 years earlier to describe Israelite mothers whose children had been killed by the Babylonians. But again, Matthew uses this description of grief as another visual prophecy, appropriate to describe the weeping of the mothers of Bethlehem when Herod had their babies murdered in his attempt to destroy the Messiah as a child. Also, if you remember your Old Testament, the reference to Rachel is also quite appropriate because she died in childbirth as she was giving birth to Benjamin when the family of Jacob was very close to where? To Bethlehem. The tomb of Rachel is right outside of Bethlehem. So this is a very appropriate application. And again, you have references to those verses in Genesis in your cross-reference sheets. Moving on now to the last part of this chapter it says now when Herod was dead again in 4 BC behold an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying arise take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the young child's life are dead then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in another dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. And as we know from Luke's gospel, Nazareth is where Joseph and Mary had begun this odyssey that they were on. Now, it says spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. There is no written prophecy in the canon of Old Testament scripture referring to Nazareth or a Nazarene. So people, again, have tried to explain away this statement that Matthew gives by conjecture, guessing. They say that Matthew's statement that prophets had spoken this prediction, but it was verbal 
prophecies. Well, maybe, but there's no evidence of that. Or they say that Matthew is using Nazarene as a synonym for someone who's despised or detestable, for that was how people from the region were often characterized. And we read that again in John's Gospel. Remember when Andrew told his friend Nathaniel that he had he had seen the Messiah and that it was Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel and, and Nathaniel replied, remember how he replied? He said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? See, they were looked down upon. They were it was not a uh, a well-thought-of region. Personally, I'm satisfied with, I don't know, and God doesn't tell us. So this explains how, though he was born in Bethlehem, Jesus came to live and be raised in Nazareth of Galilee. Galilee, which would be really the home base for his earthly ministry. The Magi played an important role, including providing resources. Think about it. Joseph was told to take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt. You have to think, well, what did they live on? Maybe Joseph got a job as a carpenter, but we also know that they had gold and frankincense and myrrh that had been provided for them by the Magi. So they had funds, they had resources to live in Egypt while they waited for Herod to die and awaiting the call of that angel to return to Israel. I find it interesting also that the Magi who were Gentiles, at least most of them, went to such lengths to worship the Jewish Messiah. They understood something from the prophecies in the Hebrew scripture that the Jews of the time did not. As we know, Jesus came for all mankind, but that wasn't understood for many years. And even Jesus himself said, you might recall, before his crucifixion, that he had come for the house of Israel. And yet, there are quite a few references to his ministering to Gentiles. The centurion, the centurion's servant, um, the woman of Tyre and the woman of Sidon. And Jesus ministered to them. And finally, we know from the Great Commission, the last verses of this gospel, that Jesus commands his followers to take the gospel to all the earth because he was indeed not only king of the Jews, but king and lord of all mankind, over all mankind. He commands his followers to take the gospel to all the earth. That's his commission for the disciples then, and that's his commission for us 
today. But the Magi were his first Gentile worshipers. And I believe that their inclusion in Matthew's gospel that was aimed primarily at Jews says a great deal. And as, as you heard, Matthew made a point of referencing quite a number of prophecies and showing how even as a young child, Jesus was fulfilling quite a few Old Testament prophecies. And Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this unique story told to us only by Matthew. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you show us that Jesus was intended to be worshipped by all mankind, not just Jews. You've shown us, Lord, that there's so much evidence of who he is coming from prophecies 400, 800, 600 years before his birth. And we thank you, Lord, also for showing us truly another, another miracle, another thing for us to see that, that you did miraculously, unexplainable by natural causes. And yet you used that to guide this special group of men, these magi, generations after Daniel, but doubtlessly including Daniel's teaching as their chief in their studies and in their preparation for what you would use to reveal not just the king of kings, not just the king of the Jews, but also Jesus as the king of kings. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.